Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable. Thank you very much to the folks who sent messages of of kindness and prayer and explanations for 400. It does have significant meaning. I appreciate you. I'm just in a bad space right now. Hopefully I get through it. Just hoping for... I don't even know if the best is even realistic to hope for. Hoping for just, you know, this too shall pass and not do too much damage. Been trying to make the most of life. I went and got my hair rebraided today. Not the whole thing because I've only had it in like a month. I got my middle part redone because it's a little fuzzy. It's real humid here, one. And then two, I haven't been sleeping with my scarf on. All it does is fall off while I'm asleep. Like it never stays on through the whole night. So I'm like, what's the point? But my hair looked like a little girl who been playing outside all summer. And I was like, ah. I wasn't going to sit for six hours to take it out or to pay someone, someone's, more than one, to take it out because that takes all damn day. And I got more hair now than I did last year. It's going to take forever. But I look like a new woman. I don't feel like one. I don't look like what I'm going through. Thank God. Davida dragged me out the house last night. I told you about the parties for the developers. You know, you like walk into a place and you could tell whether they cut corners or they spent good budget. Good budget was spent. 
Donna loves an outdoor party with a big-ass stage and a big-ass screen. Live for it. With green lights. I don't know what it is about green. I mean, it's in the flag. But loves a green light moment. But last night, very cute. Much budget. Plenty of past hors d'oeuvres, champagne, open bar. It was very lovely. One of my friends that I was on the press junket for Rwanda, he was there. Really nice guy. He's a whole sweetheart. It was cute. I was glad I left the house. Should have got a little more dressed up, though. Because I was like, oh, it's hot and it's like real estate. And like I just didn't, I don't know. I didn't put on a heel. I put on a sparkly sandal. But we're going to another event tonight for another developer. This is the place that I'm actually interested in. But they noted to like come fly. There'll be an outfit competition. I don't think I have anything with me that's super dope that could contend for a competition. Not against Ghanaians. They get their clothes made and freshly tailored. When something's made for your body versus something that you bought off the rack, you really just can't compete. Even the most simplest of dresses. I still haven't been to the market to get my fabric and get my dresses done. I don't need them made for December, but I need some outfits made so I can have a little stunt. It was good to get out the house. I was just sitting in here in the dark, wallowing, wishing I was dead. I'm not suicidal. I just, you know, don't want to be here right now. Don't worry. I'm not a danger to myself or others. But it was good to get out the house. And then I'm going out the house again, trying not to drink my way through my sorrows or eat my way through my sorrows. Because I am an emotional eater. I've worked really, really hard to tone my body. I've walked all over Europe for months. I don't want to undo my good work. So, <laughs> Davida asked me last night. She was like, so a therapist? <laughs> the funny thing is, it didn't even cross my mind. Even though I sit on here every week and talk about better help. It just, it didn't even cross my mind. I really think I'm going to buy this place. But I've been super stressed. Because it's one thing to like talk about something. Like, I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to do it. It's buying a property, so it's a big undertaking. Like, it's actually like, oh, I'm like, I'm for real, for real. Like, I'm really about to, like, commit to a space. And, you know, like, I bounce around all the time. So, like, in the U.S., if you don't have it liquid, and even if you do, you put money down on a house, you get, like, a bank loan, then you spend, like, the next 20 to 30 years paying the bank back, right? Ghana operates much differently. One, the place that I'm 95% sure that I'm buying it's just a bunch of concrete right now. You're not walking through the building and seeing like what the final finishes are or what the layout is. Like you can show me in a rendering, you can show me pictures. The place that I want boasts an ocean view, but like I don't really know exactly what that ocean view looks like. Um, and if I tried to wait until the building was done, if someone was willing to sell a unit even, it would be way more expensive. And it's also just not likely to happen. Real estate doesn't shift around the same way in Ghana that it does like say in the States. The other part, perhaps the more important part, in the States, you have 20 to 30 years to pay off a space. Ghana, you have to pay it off in full before they give you the keys. The place is not set to be finished until June 2025, which and most likely extend that by another three to six months. But I have to pay off the whole thing in the next two years. So sight unseen and paid off in two years, which sounds kind of crazy when I say it out loud. But still, I think I'm going to do it. 95%. I'm 100% on the building. I'm just 95% on like, girl, are you really about to do this? It's an undertaking. It's a big risk. Like I'm actually going to commit to one city in Africa. (laughs) I said I was going to do it when I came, but like, I'm going to actually do it. I mean, I meant it, but still, now that it's happening, it's just like, ah. What do we have in good black news this week? can't think of anything major. I mean, outside of the awards, 
We talked about Fantasia and Danielle Brooks being nominated for Golden Globes. But there are some other black people that are on the list or should be on the list that we should celebrate as well. I'm on Variety right now. Let's see. Best motion picture, drama, nothing black. Best picture, musical or comedy. Barbie, not black. Air. That was that was Viola Davis as Michael Jordan's mother. Best Director Motion Picture, Greta Gerwig, not black, but for Barbie. I thought Barbie was a good movie. Issa was in it. Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture Drama, Coleman Domingo for Rustin. I raved about that. I knew he was getting something. I hoped he was getting something. You never really know with black actors in black film. I hoped he was getting something. I'm glad he's getting something. He did really, really good. Let's see. Best Performance by an Actress. Kaylee Spaney. She's not black. She played Priscilla in Elvis. I told you I saw that movie. It was like two hours of grooming and child abuse. Very uncomfortable, but very well acted. Like, I felt yucky afterward. Best performance by an actress in a motion picture, musical, or comedy. Fantasia Barina for The Color Purple. So excited for her. Margot Robbie, Barbie. I'm rooting for Fanny. I like Margot Robbie. I thought she did great in Barbie. I'm rooting for Fanny. Come on, Fanny. You could do it. Come on, Fanny. Um, best performance by an actor in a motion picture, musical, or comedy. Jeffrey Wright, American Fiction. I know it's good because Jeffrey Wright is in it. He was also in uh, Rustin. Who was he playing? Was it Adam Clayton Cloud? Smoking a black and mild the whole movie? <laughs> I like Jeffrey Wright. I want to see American Fiction so bad. Um, best Supporting Actress, Danielle Brooks. Come on, Danny. We rooting for Danny. Um, best Television Series Drama. Ain't nothing black on this list. The Crown. The new season started literally today. I downloaded it before I went to the braid shop. It's okay. And you know what? It actually might be good. I just think the Diana years were so fascinating. And the actress who played Diana was riveting. That I'm just not... Like the first two episodes, it's one about William as a teenager. Like after his mother dies, he becomes like this international heartthrob. And he doesn't really take to it. Then there's an episode about Queen Elizabeth and Tony Blair. She was, I don't know if jealous is the right word, but concerned about his level of popularity and then the lack of popularity for the royal family. Um, and she actually asked Tony Blair, and she's like, well, what do you think? Because everybody likes you and they don't like us. So like, you know, any insight? And he was like, are you asking what I would do if I was king? And she was like, I am. He gave her a list of things that she eventually decided not to do. I was like, oh, so you wasted the man's time. Oh, okay. All right. That's episode two of the, of the second half of the season because they released season six in two parts. I want to say it was four and then now six. The third episode is about Kate meeting William. It's just, she's not a compelling person in real life and neither is William. So again, it's just dry. Also, at the point that William and Kate meet, they're in college and everyone keeps talking about how Kate is like the body like, she's known as the body. She has this amazing body. I mean, to the point that her mother comments on it. And then when she's walking around campus, they make a point of William and his friends, like, leaning forward and then leaning back to, like, watch her come and watch her go. And I'm, the actress playing Kate is a lovely-looking woman. There's nothing wrong with her form. In no way am I attempting to body shame. But I'm just like, 
you know, white people version of beauty is much different than like black folks. Like she's really thin, which, you know, a lot of white guys tend to like. Although I would say in the UK, they tend to like them a little more curved to them, but still. But I was like, what, what exactly are y'all looking at? It's a really thin white girl walking around. Like, she ain't got no ass. She ain't got no titties. She ain't got no hips. Like, y'all looking forward, pretty face. Y'all looking back. I'm like, what y'all seeing? I don't see nothing. And she's a lovely girl. I'm not trying to body shame. Like, maybe this was poor casting for the actress. But then in all the times that I've seen Kate, she's really small right now. She's very tiny. But even before she had children, like, you know, when they were just dating, I just, pretty girl, yes. But, like, the body? I just, I don't see it. I just, he likes it. He put a ring on it. Best performance by an actor in a television series drama. Nobody black, but they got three people from Succession. Jeremy Strong, who played Kendall. Kieran Culkin. Why can't I remember his name on the show? He was such a damn weirdo. He's really good. And then Brian Cox, the old man. Succession was my ish. I love that show. All three of them are really good actors. I'm rooting, I think, for Jeremy Strong. Brian Cox did a really good job as the old man, but he pissed me off so bad. But actually, that's a sign of good acting. Mm, I could take any of the three for succession. Also, Dominic West for The Crown. He plays King Charles in the later years. He's doing a really good job. I like Dominic West because of The Wire. McNulty will always be my dude. As dysfunctional and crazy as he was. But still, that's a hard category. Let's see... Best performance by an actress in a television series. The only one I'm familiar with is Carrie Russell for The Diplomat. Oh no, Sarah Snook for Succession. That's the daughter. Imelda Staunton, The Crown. Is that the woman who played Diana? No, she played Queen Elizabeth. She's good. I'm not mad at her. Best actress in a TV series, musical or comedy. Quinta Brunson for Abbott Elementary, The Quinta. And then I'm not familiar with this actress because I don't watch the show. The Bear, Ayo Itabiri. Her name sounds Nigerian to me. And I looked it up and like, yep, she black. Oh, so I'm going through the rest of this. Best actor of the TV series, nobody black. Best supporting actor, television, nobody black. Best supporting television, nobody black. Wait, Elizabeth Debicki. Who is this? Yes, Elizabeth Debicki. You know I can't pronounce shit. Um, she's nominated Best Supporting Actress for The Crown. She played Princess Diana. There's other people on this list. I don't care what they did. Her. I want her. Best Limited Series. Nothing Black or Significant Black. Best Performance by an Actor Limited Series. David Oyelowo. How do you pronounce his name? Lawman Bass Reeves. He played MLK in Selma. He's the only black person I see. There's Steven Yun. I, I didn't watch Beef. I think it was on Netflix. People raved about it. I just never got a chance to watch it. Not black, but of color. Best performance by an actress. Nobody black. Best original score. None of the black films. Best picture, non-English language. Not familiar with any of these. Best Original Song, Road to Freedom by Lenny Kravitz for Rustin. There's three songs nominated just from the Barbie movie. Best Motion Picture Animated, Wish, Disney. 
the lead character, the lead cartoon, is a black Latina with braids. Best performance in stand-up comedy or television, Trevor Noah and Chris Rock and Wanda Sykes all make the list. I'm not partial to any of those. I love Trevor Noah. I think he's adorable. I think he's smart, witty. I think he's cute to look at. I think he makes great decisions. Like, I root for him to win in life. I I can't watch his stand-ups. Chris Rock stand-up, yes. Chris Rock in movies as the lead doesn't do it for me. Wanda Sykes, I haven't watched this one. She's generally funny to me. But like in a chuckle way, not like in a fall out my seat kind of way. I really only react like that to Martin and Dion Cole. They get me. Cinematic box office achievement. Taylor Swift, the heiress tour. No mention of Beyonce. Beyonce hasn't had a box office achievement. The color purple is on here and the color purple hasn't even hit theaters yet. Beyonce's been in theaters. I don't understand this continuous snubbing of Beyonce. I don't like that. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. All right, now we're going over to Entertainment Weekly has the 2024 Critics' Choice Awards, the nominations. We're going to look at this list. They know in the headline that Taraji B. Henson was not nominated for anything, not for a Golden Globe or for a Critics' Choice. And I was like, oh, I didn't even notice when I was going through the list. But oh, I haven't seen the color purple to root for her or not. But it's the Taraji. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt, especially if like white folks publications are pointing out that she got snubbed. And I was like, that means she did a really, really good job. Even white folks are confused how a black woman didn't get nominated. These are the nominations for the Critics' Choice Awards. Best Picture, The Color Purple made the list. Everything else is white. Or no, American Fiction. American Fiction is on the list. Um, Best Actor, Coleman Domingo for Rustin. Jeffrey Wright, American Fiction. I could root for either of them. I've actually seen Rustin. Let's see. Best Actress, Nobody Black. Best Supporting Actor, Sterling K. Brown, American Fiction. Best Supporting Actress, Danielle Brooks for The Color Purple. America Ferrer for Barbie, of color, not black. That's fine. Remember that amazing speech about feminism or being a woman or existing as a woman that she gave in Barbie? Yes. Who is Divine Joy Randolph? 
just because of the spelling of her first name. Her name is spelled D-A apostrophe capital V-I-N-E. Not familiar with her, but I was like, that sounds black. And behold, is the holdovers. I'm not familiar with the holdovers. Now I got to go look and see who you are. I love black folks. I was like, nobody black. Wait a minute. Divine. <laughs> That's black. Best acting ensemble. Air. The color purple. Scrolling, I'm scrolling. And ain't a lot of black names on this list. We down to best cinematography. No black. Best production design. I'm not familiar with these people, but nobody's name sounds black. Best editing, same thing. Nobody sounds black and it's not for a black film. Best costume design. Francine Jameson Tanchuk for the color purple. Let's look this up. Let's look up Madame. Oh, hey, Francine. Francine's a black girl. I didn't know. But hey, black lady. She also did One Night in Miami. Best hair and makeup. The color purple. Barbie's also on the list. Priscilla. That was good hair and makeup. I didn't see the other films. Best visual effects. Nothing black. Best comedy. American fiction. The holdovers. What is the holdovers? I really got to go watch this. Best foreign language, not familiar, Nobody, nothing black though. Best song, Road to Freedom for Rustin, This Wish from Wish, the black Latina Disney movie. We're now down to best score. No, nothing black. All right. Well, congratulations to all of these people and the people that I didn't mention. Congratulations to all the nominees is what I'm trying to say. Good for them. I think that's it for good black news. What else do we have on this list? This is not good news. Cardi and Offset apparently are getting a divorce. Cardi announced on her Instagram Live that she was single, that she has been for some time. She didn't know how to tell people, but she's calling herself single. To my knowledge, because I feel like TMZ would have it, there's been no court filing for divorce, so they're not legally separated, even though they may be in separate domains at the moment. I don't even know if that's accurate. Emotionally, she may very well feel single. Legally, she is very much still married. Separated is, unfortunately, actually still married. And if there is no divorce decree, whether it's been one month, one year, one decade, one centennial, you are still married if there is no divorce decree. I will admit when I heard her calling herself single and, and she and Offset were having issues again, my first thought was like, they'll be fine. Like, not again. I haven't figured out if they do the back and forth for publicity, which Cardi has said many times. And she's like, yo, people pay attention to me. I'm on magazine covers. Like, I don't need to do this type of shit for publicity. Fair. Or they just, and just, quote unquote, you know, they have their marital issues and they don't handle them in the most, I would say, mature way because they end up playing them out on the internet. It could be a lack of personal support system thing they don't feel like they have anybody to talk to and or you know they've got like a shame embarrassment kink I appreciate Cardi for her transparency you know announcing that she's single is one thing um I don't know I just sort of worry about her especially with this most recent one which I actually don't think anymore is a publicity stunt she went live and she was wailing but that, that bone deep hurt, you could hear the pain in her voice about this situation with Offset, whatever's going on with him. He had a birthday party the other night. He had some people that Cardi don't mess with there. 
and she wasn't in attendance. I don't know if she was invited, but clearly there's, I think, a real rift this time. It feels different than the other times that they've done this. And they may reconcile. I mean, it's probably in everybody's best interest. They got two little kids. If they want to do that, I would hope that they would get therapy of some kind. They do this back and forth all the time, and it's really not healthy. In my relationship advice giving days, I would point out to people that when you keep having like the same conflicts, there's something broken that's not being fixed, and you're in a cycle. You're not resolving the issue, hence why it keeps coming up over and over and over again. But yeah, they're, they're very much not in a good place, and it's playing out on social media. Surprisingly, and this is actually a good thing for the people of social media because I don't have that much faith in folks. I'm seeing people, women especially, being very supportive of Cardi in this moment. I'm like, yo, people are acknowledging like, yo, you hear another woman's pain as a woman. Either you support or you stand down, but you don't clown. Nicki Minaj posted this meme of Michael Jackson hanging out a window laughing and people are saying that it was about Cardi. There's a whole nother group of people that are like, it has nothing to do with Cardi. Nikki is feuding with Kanye West over clearance of some song. Kanye has been ranting about it. And that was Nikki's response to Kanye. It's not Nikki's response to Cardi. Offset has like this Michael Jackson obsession. So Nikki posting Michael Jackson made people think that Nikki's taking a jab at Cardi's, whatever's going on with Cardi and Offset. Cardi supporters are really going at Nikki for, for quote unquote, being a mean girl. And they're also like, you know, you got a lot of nerve making fun of somebody else's husband when your husband is a convicted sex offender. I mean, uh, that is a lot of balls on Nikki. I was like, that's one subject you should stay away from, hon. But I feel for Cardi. I want her to get a therapist. I want her to get an inner circle of friends. And again, I respect that she shares her, her pain publicly. I'm just really worried that I don't know. Social media can be such a fickle place. Like people can be very supportive one day and then literally the next day, like attack you with the vulnerability that you've just offered. Maybe I'm projecting from my own situations. It doesn't really leave you in a better space. It's like just everybody knows your business and very few people actually care. Most people are just there to ha ha and laugh at your demise. So I feel for her. My empathy goes out to Cardi, the kids. Offset, I'm not really sure. Like, like, nigga, what are you doing? Like, just, uh, he seems to be antagonizing her. I'm like, take this part off the internet, please. You'll be watching it play out with so many other people. Jeannie, Jeezy. Um, we can't really do nothing for you, but like, watch, commentate. Some people will shame, critique, and laugh. But like, that does nothing for you when you're in the house, on your couch, by yourself, with your thoughts having to just sit with your life. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Last but not least, at least for our updates for this week, the LA Times ran a story on Diddy. I had to actually subscribe to the LA Times to get it. And I was like, wait now, what? The title is Behind the Calamitous Fall of Hip-Hop Mogul Sean Diddy Combs. Great picture of Puff. It's a long piece, too. We're not going to read the whole thing word for word. But the anchor for this story, obviously, is four separate plaintiffs 
have filed civil suits against Combs in the last month, accusing him of rape, sex trafficking a minor, assault, and a litany of other alleged abuses, imperiling his empire and sending shockwaves through the music industry. Combs and his attorneys have denied the accusations. The first part of the article goes into the details of the most recent lawsuits against him. Um, I think it's worth noting they talk about Harve Pierre, who has, I think, two lawsuits against him. There's a former assistant who filed a lawsuit, and then there's a 17-year-old girl that says he participated in gang rape and sex trafficking. I hadn't seen Pierre say one thing one way or another. The LA Times quotes him as saying that the allegations were, quote, disgusting, false, and a desperate attempt for financial gain. I just think if we talk about, you know, a man being accused of crazy shit, we can at least, you know, include his response just for fairness and decency. They also note that Diddy denies everything that's being alleged. I think we read his full statement that he put on Instagram the other day, the summary of which was, quote, I did not do any of the awful things being alleged. I will fight for my name, my family, and for the truth. Was settling a lawsuit with casting within 24 hours without you putting up a fight? Question. Just questions that need answers. <laughs> so the LA Times asked, how did one of the world's most successful music industry moguls come to face such a dramatic downfall? Those who've worked with Combs over the years, including former bad boy executives and members of his inner circle, told the Times that the lawsuits reflect a pattern of mistreatment of women dating back decades. So the LA Times went and found Kirk Burroughs. He's the co-founder of Bad Boy Entertainment with Combs in 1992. He served as its president until Combs fired him in 1997. They asked Kirk, they said, Kirk, what are your thoughts on Mr. Combs? Kirk said, quote, he had that propensity for violence way back then. It just wasn't as well known. It's almost like it was part of his operating manual. He was so traumatizing to women. Instead, a representative for Combs declined to comment on Burroughs' claims. So the LA Times does a quick overview of, of uh, Diddy's career. They note that he has glided between society strata, equally at home in the hard-knock underworld of New York hip-hop, as informal wear at the Met Gala. In 2002, Forbes estimated his annual income at 90 million American USD dollars and dineros. The LA Times notes that more than any other figure, Combs is responsible for hip-hop shift from urban subculture to global corporate juggernaut. They go through Diddy's career dating back to 1993. He signed a bunch of artists. He's appeared on 15 top 10 hits as a writer, producer, or featured or lead artist. They note that I'll Be Missing You topped the Hot 100 for 11 weeks in 1997. He helped cultivate the careers, the recent people, French Montana, Janelle Monet, whose 2023 LP through Bad Boy Atlantic, The Age of Pleasure, earned a Grammy nomination for Album of the Year. They talk about his fashion line. They talk about his beverage company. They talk about Ciroc. They talk about Diageo. And then they talk about his personal life. But most of this stuff we've gone over several times. We talked about the stampede in 1991. I didn't know it caused nine deaths. I thought it was actually 12. Nine is better. All of that. 1999, he assaulted Steve Stout, pled guilty. 
that same year as when the shooting happened at a Manhattan nightclub when he was out with Jennifer Lopez. The Times notes Combs was acquitted of gun possession and bribery charges while Shine was sentenced to 10 years in prison. What is Shine's NDA? Can he talk? Because I never believed he did that. Nobody ever believed Shine did that. Everybody always thought it was Diddy. I ain't going to jail for a decade for nobody for no amount of money. A decade is a lot of time. I'm not going to jail for a day for nobody. I don't even know if I'll visit you in jail. I write letters. I put money on your commissary, but actually visit the jail? I don't know. I can't say. I don't know. Okay, 2015, Combs was arrested after attacking Son Justin's college football coach with a kettlebell. We talked about that. Oh, okay, so Burroughs, the former bad boy president, in 2003, he sued Combs, alleging that in 1996, his former business partner threatened him with a baseball bat in hand into signing over his shares of bad boy entertainment. An appeals court dismissed the suit in 2006, ruling that the statute of limitations had expired. Burroughs also told the Times that in 1994, Combs physically assaulted a woman at the bad boy offices, breaking a glass table in the altercation. This is his firsthand account. He says, quote, they were entangled and I had to pull him off of her. Another bad boy employee who witnessed the incident and requested anonymity for fear of retaliation confirmed Burroughs' account to the Times. The former employee said, quote, he was hitting and punching her. The woman allegedly assaulted by Combs could not be reached for comment. A representative for Combs declined to comment on the alleged incident. Burroughs said that he fully believed Ventura and the other accusers. He said, quote, Cassie is a hero to everyone who's been devastated by Sean Combs. Sean had the charm to make people do his bidding. For a while, I was 100% down. But I know what the price is of being down with that guy. Remember in a previous episode, I think it was the one where we talked about Cassie's songwriter who wrote the open letter in Rolling Stone. I said she was the only person that seemed to be willing to talk and hadn't asked for money. She just wrote this piece in Rolling Stone. It seemed on GP. She wanted to get it off her chest. She wanted to support her friend. And I don't think there's anything wrong with the people who are asking for money, just to be clear. I just note that Several people are like, can you really trust people when they're after money? Like, can you really trust their narrative? One of the people that I brought up in that story was Roger Bond, who Cassie named in her lawsuit. He was part of Diddy's security staff. And she notes that he had tried to stop Diddy from beating on her. So Roger Bonds had gone on TikTok and he was saying that he'll talk, you know, when the time is right, when the time is right, when the time is right. And it very much seemed that he was asking for money. I didn't have this quote in when I talked about him, but it comes up in the LA Times. So I just want to note it that Bond said on TikTok about Diddy. He acknowledged that Cassie's recollections in the lawsuit were accurate. And then he also continued to say, quote of Diddy, I was sick of you. I was sick of everything that was going on around you. I was sick of having to cover up everything that you did. Also, I'm still scrolling. I've never heard this story before. 2017, Combs' private chef sued him, claiming she was denied overtime wages, falsely accused of theft, and, quote, regularly summoned by Mr. Combs to prepare and serve entrees and appetizers to him and his guests while Mr. Combs and or his guests were engaged in 
or immediately following sexual activity. It says the chef later settled the suit. I actually know a woman who was a chef for Combs. I don't recall her ever giving me any details whatsoever other than like he was a maniac. I wonder if she'll tell me if I ask. Let me get on that. They talk about the interview from Combs' former girlfriend of five years, Gina. They talk about her interview with Tasha Kay. She talks about being abused by Diddy. She said, he stomped on my stomach really hard, like took the wind out of my breath. I couldn't breathe. He kept hitting me. I was pleading to him, can you just stop? I can't breathe. They talk about the memoir from Mark Curry. I've only just now seen this circulating, but apparently that memoir has been out for a while. The LA Times describes it as scathing. It's called Dancing with the Devil, How Puff Burned the Bad Boys of Hip Hop. Is that still available on Amazon? I would like to read it. Curry says he starts belittling you, demoralizing your whole character. He's breaking you down like how a spider gets its prey. It sucks the whole inside out. Burroughs is back. He talks about Combs' use of NDAs. He says Sean Combs uses NDAs like a weapon. He'll do something devastating, pay for it with a check, and shut you up forever. The LA Times notes, this got to be like the sixth time this line is included in this article. Combs' representative declined to comment on the allegation. Now they're talking about Diddy's downfall. It's caused colleagues to abandon him. Combs announced he was stepping down as chairman of Revolt. We talked about that. He's pretty much out at Diego. That's who has the Daily on tequila and Ciroc. This says Diageo cut ties with Combs on their Ciroc partnership and the De Leon joint venture, claiming the rapper had breached their contract. Macy's, we talked about this prior, that he's out. Hmm, this is new. I saw this circulating online this week too. A planned reality show on Hulu starring Combs and his family, tentatively titled Diddy Plus Seven, is no longer in production. They do note that the Love album, Off the Grid, released in September, was nominated for a Grammy. However, LA Times notes Combs' musical future as an executive and artist is in doubt. 50 Cent, they note, is in production on a documentary about Combs' alleged abuses. I had heard about that. 50 keeps saying he's doing this documentary called Diddy or Didn't He? I thought that was a joke. Apparently 50 is for real with this shit. Man's the ultimate troll, Jesus. But I'm not mad at him on this one. I talked to a friend who works in TV. She was like, there's no less than four to five production companies working on Diddy documentaries. And she said, that's just what I know of. She said, everybody and their mother is trying to make quote unquote surviving Diddy. Okay, that's pretty much the gist of the article. They're putting Diddy in current context. The LA Times notes, hip hop's golden era was overdue for a reckoning around its culture of abuse and misogyny. Yeah. And to be quite honest, this is light work. Like, there's tons of stories still out there that have not been told. We read chapter two of A Bell in Brooklyn. Like, the guy who assaulted me when I first moved to New York, hip-hop journalist, well-known hip-hop journalist. But the women who worked at those magazines, the freelance writers for those magazines started talking. We could do a whole new reckoning. Because I know for a fact the guy that assaulted me did at least to two other women. One before me, one after me. Facts. Verified. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. 
Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. But enough about me. We have not been talking about our good friend, Miss Sheila. Notice I didn't say nothing about Bob. Miss Sheila... And that nigga who she co-founded BET with. That's where I am with Bob. So let's pick up Miss Sheila and Bob. Let's see where we left off. I'll give my usual disclaimer. We're recapping Sheila Johnson's book, Walk Through Fire. If you're not interested, just go ahead and cut the podcast off now. But you're interested in the recap of Sheila Johnson's book. Hold on for a second. Let me grab my copy and then we'll talk about it. Last time we spoke about Miss Sheila and Bob... She had left Bob and she'd moved to Middleburg. She filed for divorce. Bob had sold BET. They both made a ton of money. She was trying to navigate the divorce as best she could. She was having a lot of injuries. She was just distracted. Page 146, she says there was a serious disconnect between my body and soul. She had been out riding and she, the horse went wild and kicked her off. She says on page 147, in an instant, six of my ribs broke and my left lung collapsed. So that's where we are the last time we spoke about Bob and Sheila. We pick up on page 151 where she's living in Middleburg, which is, I mean, it's deep in Virginia, but it's maybe like 90 minutes from my parents' house. It's not super far, but you've gotten out of North Virginia, not quite to Richmond, but you're in the heart of Virginia. And she's talking about there's a place that she passes all the time and there's a Confederate flag hanging in the window. I remember I went to Richmond. They have a really good art museum that has a lot of great exhibitions. And I went on a road trip once solo. I was trying to drive down to there's this like huge Astor mansion in North Carolina. But I stopped in Richmond on the way there, went to the art museum. I don't remember the exhibition I was going to see, but I parked like right in front of the museum. And I came out of the museum, say like three o'clock on like a random Tuesday. And there were people waving waving Confederate flags. And you know, black people, we see Confederate flags. Like you might as well just be walking around in your clan hood. Like that's what I think when I see a Confederate flag. But they were waving the flags right by my car. And I was like scared to walk to my car. And I was like, oh my God, are these white people going to attack me? It's Virginia. Miss Sheila says, this is page 153. She says, culturally, Middleburg was white, Southern, conservative, and not particularly open to change. And yet, the locals were very welcome when I moved into the area with Brett and Paige. Neighbors brought by jars of homemade jam and fresh baked loaves of bread. And people in those little shops and restaurants were always friendly. Still, running underneath all that Southern hospitality were occasional flashes of racist attitude. She talks about being a philanthropist. She says in the first years after the BET sale, this is on page 157, she says she gave $7 million for a new design center to the Parsons School of Design. She also joined their board. She says, I underwrote fundraising galas for the Loudoun Hospital Center and the Piedmont Environmental Council, and I gave $100,000 to the Windy Hill Foundation to help build affordable housing in Middleburg. 
She also says that she raffled off this. I underline this part. She raffled off a Mercedes Roadster that Bob had given Paige for her 16th birthday because the car was just too fast for a teenager to be driving, which you gave a teenager a Mercedes Roadster. Like, I mean, that's some sexy shit. Don't get me wrong. It's a sexy car. But for somebody who just got a license and barely knows how to drive. I'm not really mad mama sold it. I mean, if she wanted to, she could, you know, buy another one. She says on, this is page 159. She had purchased the land for Salamander Resort, but she never really thought about what to do with it. Page 158, she has the idea of turning it into a resort, but she thought developing this resort, she says on page 159, it would quote, help me become the author of my own destiny. She notes that it would take her more than a decade to actually create the resort. Do you remember this book? It's by Brett Pulley. He's a Forbes writer. And he wrote this book. I want to say it was called Billion Dollar BET. I read it at the time. Sheila says she was out at an event. It was the Hampton Classic Horse Show. This is 2002. She says this guy comes up to her, a young black man. He asked her if she had a minute to talk. She said, okay. And he asked her, when did you know about Bob and Deborah's affair? And Miss Sheila notes, she says, I'm standing here with my 12-year-old son minding my business. And this total stranger comes up in public to ask me that? She says, I just stared at him for a second, my face getting hot and tears welling up. Then before I realized what I was doing, I opened my mouth and started talking. She told Brett, at least this is what he quoted in the book. She says, there is a sadness in me. I just feel so bad, but I have to go on with my life. The author notes that she still praises her soon-to-be ex-husband. She says, there will be a part of me that always loves him, but she reveals extramarital affairs were his biggest problem. He has got a body count. She also says, that affair with Deborah just hurt me more than anything because I knew her. And I couldn't believe she would do that. There was obviously a side of her I never knew. I find the whole thing tragic. She notes that her quotes ended up not only in the book, but also in the Washington Post gossip column, The Reliable Source. Miss Sheila notes that when The Reliable Source column came out, the headline was, quote, the ex-spouse who roared. She says her son was at a friend's house following a sleepover. She said the friend's dad shoved the paper in her 12-year-old son's face over the breakfast table and said, how dare your mother talk about your father like this? She says the child was left feeling embarrassed and angry. I've wondered multiple times reading this book how Miss Sheila's children feel about her revelations. I mean, they lived part of it because, you know, they lived in the house with their parents. They're not totally clueless. I mean, and we'll never know because neither one of them, to my knowledge, do interviews. The only interview I can remember of Paige was in Suede Magazine. There was a feature on her and her equestrian lifestyle. Gosh, Suede was before I got to Essence. I was at Essence in 2007. So we're talking about 2002, 2003, 4, 5, something like that. It's the only interview I can think about off the top of my head that Paige has done. She eats her food and minds her business, which I'm not mad at. This is interesting. 
at this point, Sheila and Bob are separated, but they are not officially divorced. Because of their extreme wealth, they hack out a 50-50 split of their assets. They've been married for like 30 years at this point, and they didn't want to give all the money to the lawyers. So they basically come up with a plan, and then they have to have a judge like agree to it and grant the divorce. I think I mentioned like episodes ago, we were talking about Sheila and Bob's early years. She had been an actress for a while. This is back in the 70s. And when she was an actress, this was 1973, she had been in a play with this guy. Um, His name is Bill Newman. I guess we're talking about 20, 25 years that have passed since then. Bill had left acting behind. He'd gone to law school and he'd ended up as a judge. And he also ends up as the judge at Sheila and Bob's divorce. Sheila said that because she and Bob had had hashed out everything, basically all the judge had to do was sign off. So it wasn't a concern that the judge was impartial or anything. Sheila said she was at court and she was talking to the judge and she said, you know, we caught up like old friends do. And she says, quote, I found myself remembering how comfortable I always felt with him. I looked at his left hand and didn't see a ring, which surprised me. And I wondered for a brief moment, was he gay? I couldn't figure out why he wouldn't be married as he was a kind, good-looking, successful, stable man. Whatever was going on, she said, I enjoyed our little catch-up so much. I said, you know, we should have lunch together one of these days. And she said, the judge just nodded and said, you know where to find me. She said, he probably didn't think I meant it, but I did. She ends up marrying the judge. Oh, and right here, we're on page 166. We get a glimpse of Sheila's father once again. He died in 2002 at the age of 84. Sheila said she found out from her brother. And her brother asked her if she planned to go to their father's funeral. And Sheila says... Quote, why would I want to go pay respects in death to a man who's shown zero respect for me, my mother, or my brother in life? She also points out that her father showed no respect for her children. The the children, if you recall, were adopted. I make no distinction. If those are your kids, those are your kids. Whether you birthed them, whether you adopted them, those are your kids. It is what it is. The father didn't feel that way. Sheila says her mother had ended up in touch with her father later in life. And she, the mother, said once to her ex-husband, you should really get to know Sheila's kids. He told his ex-wife, they're not mine, so why should I bother? That man was just evil. The other part too, Sheila notes, that her father said that to her mother, knowing full well that her mother was adopted. Man has no humanity. Like, oh my God. Sheila says her brother really did want to go to the funeral and the brother reached out to their father's widow, the nurse that he's run away with is how Sheila describes her. And she says, what do you think her answer was? She told Sheila's brother, her husband's only son, that she'd rather he didn't come to the funeral. So Sheila says, this is page 166 still. She says, within the span of a month, my divorce was final and my father was gone. It would take me years to heal and a lot of work to find myself again. But for the first time in a long time, maybe ever, I was truly free. That's, that's tragic. So now we're on page 168. This is, uh, this is two pages into chapter 11. 
Sheila had a big fundraising gala in D.C. And she sent an invite to Bill. That's the, the judge in her divorce case. And it was to him and a guest. And he mentioned it to his mother. And he said he was going to take a woman that he just started seeing. And his mother told him, nah, Bill. She said, you go to that party alone. You don't take anyone else. And Bill was like, well, why, mama? And the mother said, because I remember how much you liked Sheila back then. You were always talking about her. Bill says to his mom, you know, she just got a divorce. I don't think she's interested. And mama said, no, don't take nobody else to that party. So Bill ends up going to the party. And Sheila's version of him, she said, I thought he looked like Mr. Cool over there. But then Bill told her later he just had knee surgery and he didn't want to bring the cane he'd been using to get around. So the man had taken a bunch of ibuprofen. He'd, quote, hobbled in and leaned against the bar all night to hide the fact that his knee was killing him. You know, I always say interested men act interested. Bill was interested. Man just had surgery, took some drugs and left his cane at home because he wanted to make a good impression on this woman. We're talking about people in their 50s. I'm going to repeat myself. Interested men act interested. If he wanted to, he would. Hanging out with Bill, she had a revelation. She said, this was what it was like to be with a man who was comfortable in his own skin, who was kind and generous and knew how to take care of his partner. She says, from the first conversation at the gala, I was smitten with Bill. I'm on page 170. Sheila is hanging out with Bill. She says being with him, quote, felt like being wrapped in a warm blanket following an ice storm. She says Bill and Bob actually met at a party years ago. And this is while Sheila and Bob were still married. He walked up to Bob and he said, hey, like, you don't know me. I'm Bill. And I did a play with Sheila years ago in D.C. Sheila knows she says Bob was talking with Denzel Washington. Sheila says Bob looked at Bill. And again, this was this is why they were still married. And while Bob was treating Sheila like pure D shit on a regular basis. Bill's version of events is Bob just looked at Bill with disgust and said, man, get out my face. I don't know you. Who, who, who says that? Sheila says Bill was confused and Denzel seemed embarrassed, even apologizing for Bob's behavior. This is when Bill and Sheila are getting to know each other and they're talking. He's telling Sheila these stories. Bill says a little later during the party, Bill saw Bob wrapped up with a light-skinned woman who he didn't recognize. All he knew for sure was that she wasn't me. Sheila says, I don't know who that woman was either. Maybe it was Deborah Lee. <laughs> Yo, she throwing Deborah under the damn bus. She said, maybe it was Deborah Lee, maybe it wasn't. Either way, it was just like Bob hanging all over another woman in a public place and not giving a rat's ass who saw him doing it. She said, Bill said to her, Sheila, I know what you've been through and I want you to know that I'm here for you. Whatever you need to do to get past that. She says, that's the moment I fell in love with Bill Newman. I wrote in the margin, I said, smiling with Nelly and Ashanti teeth. <laughs> so Sheila admits, she says, you know, I know things are going fast with Bob. She says that for so much of her life, she'd been known as, quote, the wife of Bob Johnson. Never just Sheila Johnson in my own right. And she says, quote, while it might have been better to give myself time to heal before jumping into the next phase of my life, I didn't want to wait. I wanted to get my life back on track 
But more than that, I wanted to prove myself. She says that as a single woman, she said she was $800 million liquid. She had problems establishing herself as a single woman. She said she went to the Bank of New York. They had been she and Bob's bank for a very long time. And she called a meeting to discuss like what to do with her 800 million American USD dollars in dineros. And she said the bank, quote, sat me down in a conference room with a very young woman wearing a twirly skirt. And she started asking me completely irrelevant questions. She says without Bob there, they were treating me like a clueless wife rather than a customer in my own right. She says, I kept asking for a higher level advisor or manager who could help me get my accounts in order, but no one seemed willing to take me seriously. This was like 2000. And even if it was like 1950, you talk about somebody that has 800 million American USD dollars in dineros and you give a fuck whether she has a penis or a vagina. Are you serious? They are. Sheila says, eventually I stood up and I said, I don't like the way I'm being treated. I'm going to move my money to a different bank. She said, only then, quote, people started scrambling and everybody wanted to make me happy, but I was annoyed. Would any man with nearly a billion dollars in the bank have to fight to be taken seriously? Of course not. She says the bank wasn't the only institution that couldn't seem to figure out that women are equal human beings. She said she had trouble setting up a bank account in Middleburg. They kept saying that she needed Bob's signature even after the divorce was finalized. She said she couldn't get utility bills for Salamander Farm changed to her name. They kept wanting Bob's approval. She said that she was shouting to the phone, we're not married anymore. And she says, four decades after watching my mother struggle to get a credit card and open a bank account following her divorce, I couldn't believe that I was going through something so similar. So throughout the book, I'm like, why won't you leave? Like she has, she keeps repeating, I have this fear of becoming like my mother and being broke and destitute. If I leave my husband, like, what am I going to do? The whole time I've been screaming, ma'am, y'all stock is worth 218 mil. Like if you leave, you're taking half of that. It was like 20 years of marriage at that point. Come to find out her fears weren't that unfounded that she could sit in a bank with $800 million liquid and still not be taken seriously that she can't get utility bills in her name when she's $800 million liquid, that people are still asking, well, like your husband has to co-sign when she's not even married. And this is 2000. In my head, I read all the stuff that she said and I was like, she sounds crazy thinking that like she's going to be treated like her mother was in the 60s. And yet, and yet, she was. Miss Sheila wasn't that paranoid after all. It's not paranoia if this is true. But Sheila goes about planning Salamander Inn, which I've been to a couple of times. I've stayed there once. I've just gone there for brunch and spa another time. She talks about the multitude of obstacles to get Salamander built. I'm flipping forward. And when I say obstacles, I mean like not just like basic stuff like the community is opposed and, you know, just for whatever reasons they are. But a large part of their opposition was that she was a black woman. She said she was walking down the street one day. On her way to, because there was Salamander Inn, which is the hotel. She also had a restaurant. Remember I told you about the place that was flying the Confederate flag? She actually bought that place and turned it into a restaurant. She said she was walking down the street on the way to her restaurant. She said an older white man was coming toward her. And as he passed by, he leaned in close and said, black bitch, and then kept walking. She said her daughter, she was a teenager by then. 
she went in town for a manicure and she says a woman in the shop started yelling at her how dare your mother come in here and destroy this beautiful area she told her daughter to find out the woman's name as it turned out she was a neighbor Sheila's trying to move on um, professionally and she notes I'm on page 180 now she talks about having nightmares she said that she was having these terrifying dreams where someone was chasing her or she was choking and she couldn't get the words out. She said, sometimes Bill had to shake me awake because I was weeping and crying out in my sleep. She says, Bill was incredibly patient and loving with me, but in the dark of night, I never felt safe. She says, anytime I thought about Bob and Deborah together, I flared with anger all over again. I just couldn't get over what they had done and couldn't get past my feelings of humiliation and shame. She said sometimes that she would take her anger out on Bill. She said that while he was understanding of what she was going through, he also wasn't willing to be her punching bag. She also said that she started pushing Bill to get married. She said, quote, I had an intense sense of urgency probably because I feared that he was going to leave me. And if he was, I needed it to happen sooner than later. I couldn't stand the thought of allowing myself to get close to this wonderful man, only to have him dump me and walk away. Down deep, I didn't believe he could love me because I didn't feel worthy of love. She said when she would have these like outbursts, she would ask Bill sometimes and she was like, do you really love me? Like, do you, do you really love me? And he would say, yes, I really love you. And she said, Bill would take her face and say, Sheila, you are worthy of being loved. She said it would take me years to believe him, but he never stopped saying it. I wrote in the margin in all caps. I said, come on, Bill. Come on, Bill. There's very few Bills in the world. Deborah says, I slowly began to understand what my years with Bob had done to me. Deep down, I had come to believe that I was a failure, that I was ugly, that I was worthless. I was consumed with bitterness and anger, and I always felt like people were laughing behind my back. Stupid Sheila, what a fool. I didn't know how to break that cycle or if it could even be broken. Maybe I would just feel like this forever, an insecure mess of a woman. Oh my God, I just, it pains me. It pains me that a woman so beautiful and so smart and so resourceful and accomplished and brilliant could feel that way about herself. But I mean, you know, multiple times throughout this book, Sheila kind of infers that Bob is the devil. I mean, is she wrong? Does she lie? Is that, is that inaccurate? Fast forwarded to page 192 and... Salamander Resort is actually like underway. There's been like a bunch of BS, but it's actually like in, in motion now. And she says like, you know, I wanted to build it for its own sake. But she also says I had something to prove. I'm like, did you? She says, after all those years of toiling to build BET, I never seemed to get credit for anything other than being Bob Johnson's wife. She says, even on the cover of Brett Pulley's book, The Billion Dollar BET, it was a close-up photo of Bob sitting on a conference table and looking smug like he owned the world and you were just the guest there. Nobody thought I could be a success in business because nobody knew what I'd done at BET 
or that I'd built my own lucrative music business in the 1970s and 80s. She said I could still hear Bob's voice in my head telling me that I was going to fail. And if that wasn't enough, I often heard it from Bob himself, who I unfortunately still had to see because we were parenting our kids. Sheila says whenever he'd come to the farm to pick up the kids, he'd be sure to tell Sheila how much she was doing wrong. She says, quote, he was constantly in my business, just showing up at the house and dropping his opinions everywhere. I finally told him he wasn't allowed on the property without my permission and said that I would gladly have my security team escort him off. But even over the phone, he'd find ways to undercut me and make me doubt myself. Is this what gets Bob hard? Like, I'm just, I, how are you this much of a villain? Like, if someone wrote this kind of character for, like, a show that I was working on, I'd be like, it's unrealistic. Like, he has no redeeming qualities. He's not three-dimensional. Bob is like the dark-skinned guy in, like, a Tyler Perry movie. Like, no redeeming qualities. Just villainous through and through. We're on page 194. We're about to wrap up our commentary for this week. So, Middleburg is... I said it was a go. It's not quite a go. It's looking like a go. But they have a meeting... Is it a council meeting? Is it a town meeting? Council. The townspeople wanted to be heard. She says, I sat there quiet as a lamb, but screaming inside. She said, there's this guy that stood up and he said, do not sell Middleburg to that woman. Um, she says, another man stood up and he's complaining about the poor development. He says, it would do more harm to Middleburg than the union did during the Civil War. Um, it's just sort of assumed that it would be poor development. Because Salamander exists now, like you know how it turns out, she won. She says when the vote comes through, she says, I realized, quote, I wasn't an idiot. I wasn't a failure. Miss Sheila, you never were. Oh my God. She says, fast forward, she's done some self-work. And she says one day, she says, Mr. Bill, he gets down on one knee. The man got bad knee. He got down on one knee because if they're interested, they act interested. They, they go the extra mile. He got down on one knee. She said, which, quote, let's be honest, was not the easiest thing for a big man who had knee surgery. But he got down on one knee and he said, Sheila, will you marry me? She said she told her mother she got engaged. She said her mother was thrilled. And she asked her, she said, Sheila, have you tasted the milk? And Sheila said, have, have I what now? She said, surely my mother wasn't saying what I thought she was saying. And she says, uh, you know what I mean. Girl, you got to make sure it's good. I also am just very tickled that Sheila is this embarrassed about sex. And like, she got to be 50 at this point. She says, we weren't a couple of kids getting married. We were people in our 50s, see, who had lived full and busy lives. Of her second wedding, Sheila says, because, you know, the first one wasn't really nothing to write home about. She says, of this wedding, she says, I brought in a wedding planner named Preston Bailey. The MF Preston Bailey. You ain't seen florals until you've seen Preston Bailey do florals. Oh, you've not seen beauty until you've seen Preston Bailey's version of it. Oh, Sheila says of this wedding, she said they turned the riding arena at Sandamander Farm into a little white chapel. They planned a steak and lobster dinner for 700, shipping in thousands of flowers and building a translucent dance floor for the reception. She says, we also had a 400-pound tiered wedding cake designed by Sylvia Weinstock. I'm not familiar with Sylvia. Who's Sylvia Weinstock? 
You're familiar with Sylvia. Can you send me some of her work so I can see what her cakes look like? I just want to see for the, the decadence and opulence of it so my eyes can be pleased. Oh, this is very sweet. She says that uh, their vows, she said, we looked at each other holding hands and Bill spoke first. He said, I love Sheila and I want to marry her. She says, I let the words wash over me. And then I said, I love Bill and I want to marry him. She says, their officiant pronounced them husband and wife and they kissed to make it official. Sheila said, I hadn't felt so happy in a long, long time. But more than that, I finally felt safe. That's page 203. We'll wrap up Sheila and Bob, 205 to... It's not that many pages, 242. We'll wrap it up by Tuesday or Friday of next week. Oh, after all that Sheila has been through, I just got the warm fuzzies inside. She found someone who made her feel safe. That makes me happy. Oh, good for Sheila. That's the episode for this week. I think we'll be back next week. I'm pretty sure. Technically, my production company is on hiatus for the holidays, but my actual producer is still uploading. Also, the 400th episode is next Friday. So hopefully, we'll get the 400th episode this year. I hope it happens. I need a win right now. I really do. We'll be back, God willing, next week. All right, bye. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.